Yeah. I didn't realize that Defoe was kind of a bad boy as well, who went to prison quite oh, a really? lot. Oh, really? He went to debtor's jail several times, and he was also in Newgate for a seditious libel. Ooh, against what? The plague? No, against, um, uh, I guess, the Stuarts. He was Protestant. And Presbyt- well, he was Presbyterian and, and a bit of a dissenter. Mm. Um, and so when, I think it was when William died and Anne took over, he ended up in a pillory for three days. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, good. <laughs> I guess, yeah. I mean, I'm quite sympathetic to him. Actually, yeah, we, I mean, may, we may need to, uh, and actually we can just include this for the recording, but I, I don't know much about his biography but we may need to do that and come back and do robinson crusoe i think we should he's yeah. a really interesting biography and he's also done tons of stuff he was very prolific as a writer but he was also a merchant and involved in all this like business and pamphleteering and fiction and you know he just seemed to do tons of stuff yeah all right well with that said welcome to literary hangover folks today we are talking about a journal of the plague year by daniel defoe a 1722 fictitious journal about the mid-1600s plague um that i don't know how would you guys describe it beyond that i mean it shows it's an early instance of sort of like um numerical analysis of towns is an interesting thing there's also the current relevancy with our pandemic obviously um i'm curious what like immediately stuck out to you guys about this book i'd say it was like it's interesting for its time because it it reads like a people's history of sorts so he's not too terribly caught up with like the larger ramifications of like the restoration had just taken place and like you, you could see a different version of this book as being like this is the first major stress test of like the new monarch but instead mm-hmm. it was just high focused on these like uh details of, of everyday workers lives which i found really interesting and refreshing yeah there's a lot of focus on how the poor people are the ones that are getting shafted in this which mm-hmm. is interesting like the i mean maybe nancy pelosi could take a few uh, cues in her pr department instead of standing in front of your fridge with ice cream but anyway how about you grace uh well when i first started reading this book I read it as nonfiction. I didn't realize it was actually a novel. Um, and I think there's still some dispute over whether it is a novel as such, just because it does contain so much history. But yeah, I read it as what it's called, which is a journal mm-hmm. of a year in London, um, full of facts. Um, not a huge amount of, of speculation in it, but I did enjoy the little moments where you get a glimpse of a character in the narrator. He's not simply an observer. Like he does talk about himself a little bit and you get these little pieces of his personality coming through. So maybe we'll get into some of that in this episode. Yeah, definitely. It's funny because it's, you know, 1722 is early in the novel form. Um, So you basically have people uh, copying other forms of prose writing, like journals and yeah, exactly. It's like a, it, Herman Melville does a lot of this in the travelogue sense um, later, right? Like it, it is just kind of like, this is what you can market to people because they're, they have some familiarity with that or the, as we've said before, the epistolary, uh, epistolary, <laughs> oh, man. 
It depends on which side of the Atlantic you're on. Okay, yeah. Um, epistolary, or epistolary. Um, the letter uh, novel. The letter novel, uh, like Fan- Fanny Francis Burney and Evelina. Anyway, um, it is, you can imagine this on like a blog post or like a local area, like, you know, mm-hmm. bulletin, uh, basically. Mm-hmm. These, these are the numbers. I mean, that's the thing that struck me is just like, and, and we'll kind of get to this, uh, bring in, the first source here, Martin Wagner's Defoe, Foucault, and the Politics of the Plague. Um, I think this is a good intro to it from Wagner. Um, He says, uh, in his lecture at the College de France on 15 January 1975, Michel Foucault speaks of two dreams or ideal fantasies that that the bubonic plague historically inspired, one that he calls literary and another that he calls political. The literary dream celebrates in the plague the dissolution of all order and specifically the dissolution of the confines of individuality. There is a literature of the plague, Foucault states in his lecture, that is a literature of the decomposition of the individual, a kind of orgiastic dream in which the plague is the moment when individuals come apart and when law is forgotten. The political dream of the plague, in contrast, imagines the measures taken against the spreading of the disease as a complete imposition of political power over the spreading of the disease, as a complete imposition of political power over the population and concretely over the individuals into which this population can be divided. The plague, according to the political dream, is a marvelous moment when political power is exercised to the full. Plague is the moment when spatial partitioning and subdivision of a population is taken to its extreme point, where dangerous communications, disorderly communities, and forbidden contacts can no longer appear. The moment of the plague is one of an exhausted sectioning of the population by political power, the capillary ramifications of which constantly reach the grain of individuals themselves, their time, habitat, localization, and bodies. Earlier in the lecture, Foucault outlines the measures by which the partitioning of the towns and population are achieved. Uh, This is Foucault writing, the plague town was divided up into districts. The districts were divided into quarters and the streets within these quarters were isolated. In each street, there were overseers in each quarter, inspectors in each district, someone in charge of the district. There is then an analysis of the territory into its smallest elements and everything thus observed has to be permanently recorded by means of this kind of visual examination and by entering all information in big registers. At the start of the quarantine, in fact, all citizens present in the town had to give their name. Their names were entered in a series of registers. Every day, the inspectors had to visit every house, stopping inside and summoning the occupants. Each individual was assigned a window in which he had to appear, and when his name was called, he had to present himself at the window, it being understood that if he failed to appear, it had to be because he was in bed, and if uh, he was in bed, he was ill, and if he was ill, he was dangerous, and so intervention was called for. Um, in Foucault's view, the measures taken in the plague towns across Europe from late Middle Ages onward, the first major outbreak The first major outbreak of the bubonic plague hit Europe in 1348, the last in 1720, I'll just note two years before the writing of this in uh, Marseille, France, that was, um, provided a paradigm for the for the new regimes of surveillance and government control that emerged in the 18th century. The plague town, in other words, became the laboratory of an unprecedented extension of state power over the population. Like Bentham's Panopticon, the plague town is for Foucault a paradigm of modernity. And I mean, maybe it's because of what I do professionally um, that I'm sort of preoccupied with this element of our ongoing crisis. Uh, It strikes me that um, this 
political dream of enforcing order onto a populace during a crisis like this is something that is being done, though not terribly well here. Uh, it's being done better in other countries. I mean, Asian countries where literally like you don't leave your building, we're going to deliver food to you. We have like somebody, literally like a person designated to this building to deliver food this, right? Like here it's like wait on hold for unemployment insurance, right? I, I mean, more crucially for capitalism's purpose or, or the purpose of making money is... Places like South Korea have such an extensive testing regime uh, capability that they're actually able to open up because um, they're able to use these, frankly, authoritarian or surveillance things like uh, contact tracing through your phones, right? Everyone's known for a long time, your phones track everywhere you go. They have a map and they can literally see where you went. And actually, it turns out that can be kind of useful if you know that that person has coronavirus or not. Unfortunately, America's so effed up that we don't, we can't even do the testing part of that equation to use this surveillance apparatus um, that could actually get the economy up and running. That's how basically we're stuck between both dreams, the anarchic, the uh, literary dream of anarchism and the political dream of order. I don't know. What do you guys Didn't it just come out that Amazon was able to use heat mapping technology to track its workers like... <laughs> congregating to unionize. Yeah, you would think like, oh, to make sure they're social distancing? No, it's yeah, to make yeah. sure they're not like saying, hey, should we go on strike? Yeah, exactly. Of course. I mean, and I mean, I would imagine they have listening devices that automatically like do text-to-speech transcriptions and people can keyword search, right? Yeah. I mean, very simple for the... I mean, we live in this panopticon. This, this, this Zoom stuff, right? People have to go into work or go into class and you literally just you have to turn your camera on even though you're not expected to speak because your boss or your teacher is going to speak, but they want to know you're there. Uh, right. And they know you're being disciplined. So, I mean, definitely I think the relevance uh, is here. And I, I, I just think it is, it's a sort of thing where this is a test of modernity for it was back then. And it is now. Uh, and I mean, that's, that's the way I'm viewing this pandemic. And then there's this alternative view we'll get to, which is sort of the, individualist uh, mindset of a pandemic when you sequester yourself. But I don't know, do you guys have any, anything more to say on the, um, the social like control element of this stuff? Yeah, just on that last point you made, I think it's interesting that the extent to which the sort of individual autonomous decision to self-confine or self-quarantine is, um, you know, the extent to which that is like a, a radical move depends on the the competency of the government. So, for example, in the UK and in the US, I think the idea that it was like a good thing to self-quarantine, it's a responsible thing to self-quarantine, was very much like put on the individual because there was such a lack of leadership from both governments. Whereas, you know, in the examples you've cited, like South Korea, Taiwan, China, this is something that's much more enforced from above. And so now you've got this dynamic, kind of cultural dynamic, I guess, where like the good um, kind of bougie liberal response is also like the moral response, which is to self-quarantine. And that implies a certain amount of privilege, right? Because, you know, the ability to like stay in your home, your apartment is also tied to your ability to like continue paying your bills and feed yourself and 
all of that stuff. So I think it's just, there's a lot of different like currents running um, up against each other, depending on like the society that we live in. Right. Yeah, I think that the, the social aspect of this, both reading this journal of a plague year and then being able to experience our own as it unfolds is there are a lot of similarities, even like eerie similarities that I'm sure we'll um, talk through. But one of the biggest divergence for me is that when we talk about there, there's been like 28 to 30 some plagues in the last like uh, 400 years before this one in, in, Lond- in London. And so there's this kind of like both like cultural and institutional um, uh, memory that kicks in for these people that even though it's like a horrible experience, there's, there's uh, known um, rituals almost that they all go through. And that could not be more different for at least me watching uh, American culture right now that has no institutional and no living uh, memory of what to do about this. And it was amazing to watch it first, uh, like the outbreak, the, uh, the reality of the outbreak happened because you just, I feel like I got this flood of like, okay, this is what we need to do. And it'll be this. And then, and then eventually we'll do this. And it's like, what the hell are you talking about? You have like people like, I, like, you know, like online or, or people like fame, like more like personalities being like, like, this is what you got to do. And it's like, you have no idea. No one has any idea how to like handle this, like including like the government or like, like civic leaders or social leaders. And I feel like we've kind of gotten that out of our system and it's interesting to see, or like, I guess like Cuomo, like just be like, I'm just going to go on TV and talk about process because we like have no, like nothing to compare this to basically because the last time was uh, uh, 1918. And that seems to not have made a serious imprint on like culture in terms of like art and representation. I didn't notice it, but I do know that there's one time in the journal where, uh, is it Mr. WF? Is that the narrator or I forget what the narrator says, uh, that people, there was this woman who had lived through the plague in the 1730s and she had wisdom, but she'd only dispense it to other women in the community. Mm-hmm. You guys remember that part? Mm-hmm. Which is like, I mean, that's something, so, it's amazing, like in the small world element to this. Because another thing about this is the scale of our, th- our issues is way bigger than theirs in terms of raw numbers. Like he's saying like, oh crap, we hit 200 deaths last night right and that to them is a lot mm-hmm. to us it's like god it'd be nice to have a night with only 200 deaths um obviously it's more of a dire situation in the plague because you have it's transmitted through rats i think the death rate I mean, and it kills in like two days yeah exactly yeah. there's some other other elements of it that are much worse to go through but i don't know it's just like the, in terms of raw death uh, it's it's i don't know kind of terrifying um uh, just on the on that kind of note of um, being able to shut yourself up being a privileged thing, well, I'll continue with Wagner here. The narrator discusses a strategy of self-confinement in the context of his stories about the shutting up of houses, stating that, quote, many families foreseeing the approach of the distemper, as the uh, plague was called, laid up stores of provisions sufficient for their whole families and shut themselves up and that so entirely that they were neither seen nor heard of till the infection was quite ceased and then came abroad uh, sound and well. In Defoe's narrative, the practice of shutting yourself up seems to enjoy a privileged status. Theoretically speaking, it successfully saves people not only in London, but also in the surrounding areas, uh, which that's a big part of it. The suburbs are a big part of it and the hostility mm-hmm. of, you know, they need to bring food to market, but And thankfully, they are just getting wiped out doing that. But also in the surrounding areas, which are otherwise overrun by the fugitives of the plague who may carry the disease with them. 
the fact that this measure could have only limited effect in practice as if we want to play as yeah, but basically the rats thing. Um, social distancing works better for our situation than it did then because uh, ours is air, uh, transmitted by air um, and not by, or, or particles in the air, not by, you know, rats. Um, by shutting themselves up the citizens assert their agency and right to survive the plague without compromising public safety or government rule. Um, and so you can see where Foucault, like why this is relevant to Foucault. Let's see. Maybe I should, I'll just continue reading a little bit here. Um, oh yeah. And also everyone, I mean, I don't know. I've skimmed Robinson Crusoe, but I've never uh, really read it cover to cover, but Everyone's kind of familiar with the story. Guy gets shipwrecked and basically recreates a bourgeois life Gilligan style um, with his ingenuity. Uh, as commentators have not failed to note, the story of the grocers, basically, so the same year that Defoe wrote this Journal of the Plague Year, he also wrote uh, a work called... It's like a prepper's guide. Yeah, do preparations uh, for the plague or something like that. It, was, it came out a few months earlier. Again... Two years earlier was the plague uh, resurgence in 1720. And this due preparations talks about a grocer who basically gets all these supplies um, smuggled into his uh, building and goes through these incredible, you know, um, procedures to get safe. Uh, and Wagner comments on this um, sort of the uh, – this grocer shut himself up and the people shutting themselves up in a plague journal and likens that to Robinson Crusoe, I think in an interesting way. As commentators have not failed to notice, the story of the grocer's self-confinement during the plague resembles that of Defoe's most famous hero, Crusoe. It is the story of the attempt to recreate bourgeois life and householding in more or less complete autonomy from the influence of the society that gave rise to this lifestyle. The story of Crusoe, like that of the man who shuts himself up, narrates bourgeois household in, in the language of individual adventure. Comparing the grocer who shuts himself up to Crusoe, John Rachetti writes, one might take this as a recurring scene in Defoe's imaginative world. The individual barricaded as well as provisioned like Crusoe in his island hunkered down in a fortified hideaway against a hostile and threatening and most terrifying of all totally unpredictable outside environment where God's providence is extremely hard to locate in any useful or comforting specific sense. It ends by saying this kind of interesting thing, which is that the author doesn't entirely, we've mentioned um, already, he has curiosity, he writes here, curiosity, a key word that he uses on eight occasions to motivate his behavior, drives him outdoors. But though I can find my family, I could not prevail upon my unsatisfied curiosity to stay within entirely myself. And though I generally came frightened and terrified home, yet I could not restrain uh yeah so like he does break apart break away from that that's like a rebellion he's like the underground now he's 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 a rebel basically um, there's also like a morbid fascination i think in that that's driving him because every time he goes out he sees worse and worse stuff like right on the floor and crazy yeah things. and i mean i guess if you wanted to uh put the best light on it it could be a that is it's the impulse to bear witness i mean all the um the yeah. numerical tables and things like that. I, I mean, playing this every once in a while, well, it was Twitch streaming. People might've checked that out. <laughs> um, it's just like, he just reads deaths or amount of new cases or, and yeah. things like that. Um, but, had, like some people's response to this pandemic has been to really get into the numbers. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've got people in your life who are just 
kind of obsessively refreshing um, the stats. Yeah, what yeah. are like the body count, and that's not how I deal with anxiety. But it is it is helpful for some people. And then as I was listening to Defoe, just those endless tables of numbers of what what do they call them? The bills, the weekly bills. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just relentless. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's funny how different things we use to salve our pain. Like information is one of those things. Obviously people can identify the people crying out for God in the street. Um, as he talks about for a while as, you know, um, probably going to be fruitless and people might die. Um, but also just obsessing over, you know, where the spread is. I mean, on the other hand, it does seem like there's some borderline, like we stopped the we bent the curve sort of talk towards the end of it too. So like you see um, the more uh, productive elements of this sort of impulse. Uh, and I, I mean, it, and also another thing just in terms of the regulation that went on during this time, there's an extended section about how we need to bury people six feet under, uh, mm-hmm. right? Like at, at a minimum, otherwise the plague can come back up. So there's all this different type of regulation going on at an anarchic time. Um, anything else you guys want to say before we get to playing some of the selections? Yeah, I just, yeah, just think jumping off of the the um, thing about it being, I think it being a novel is really key to this like piece of art's power. And also kind of like with the rise of the novels, like the rise of like the individual and like the interior self, you would think that a story about, you know, a, a city under siege by like an invisible threat could, could take form in like an opera or, or a play, but there's something really harrowing about, being stuck in this this person's head who's walking the streets and you can you can hear the like soundtrack of of agony around him and Mm -hmm. it makes for this really claustrophobic um experience which you know currently going through a similar version of it claustrophobia is like the defining trait of this whole thing yeah Um, one thing that i noticed as i was reading as well that was that this was written and this plague happened at a moment in history where there was a big tension between science and religion and an emerging kind of enlightenment understanding of empiricism and the value of observation, scientific observation in medicine versus this um, need to interpret things through theology. And so that drama gets played out in this text. Um, there are several moments where he, you see him kind of like playing with that a little bit, like where he talks about uh, the plague as like God's vengeance, an act of God perpetrated on a city that is full of sin. Um, but then he also kind of backtracks on that and says, well, you know, it's probably true that most of the people who died had done something wrong, but not all of them. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's so full of those like beautiful inconsistencies. And I really love that about literature of this period. I mean, the 17th century is unparalleled for that. Well, you were, there, you, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, Alex, I don't know if you caught this line. There's one line that I hadn't heard before, which is like, if you give to the poor, you're lending to God. Yes. I love which is that. like, holy shit. I mean, Amazing. bring some of that back, please. Oh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, yeah, Grace, I think like you're right. Like he, he, he does this amazing job of being ambiguous about where like, like, in his moralizing, he's just like, he's open to like all, all different like possibilities. And like yeah. at the beginning, he, 
retells all these uh, people's experiences about seeing a literal angel outside of London pointing like a sword and he, he like goes into graphic detail, but what this angel could have looked like and happens to mention that the people who were the most poor and the most scared definitely saw it, which mm-hmm. just has this kind of <laughs> double truth to it that it's like, yeah, the people who are most likely going to die probably would see a horrific vision <laughs> before. Yeah. And he's like, most, he's very scathing of superstition and he has this attack on like astrology, which mm-hmm. he says is another kind of, um, Thing that the poor love to kind of dwell on uh but at the same time like he himself when he says how he's deciding whether to leave london or stay he says that the moment he decided was when he like opened the bible and it just happened to open onto a particular psalm mm-hmm. and the psalm was about how you should <laughs> stay in london yeah. through the plague <laughs> um and I'm like, come on, that's maybe a little superstitious now. Yeah, that's bibliomancy, which was really popular in the um, Augustan uh, Roman Empire, where they would pull open te- codex of uh, Virgil and read random lines, and that would tell them their future. Really? That's yeah. A- we should do that. that <laughs> <laughs> well, occasionally that happens on Twitter. It's like open to page 87 and whatever the line is. is the, um, yeah, you do see versions of it now and again. Yeah. But that opening drama, I think, is really interesting, too, if we're, if we're just going to keep going for a second. that The opening drama of the book is, is does this character stay or does he go mm-hmm. into the country? And that is like when I was like hooked right away. I was like, right, I just experienced that. And yeah. that's something that it's like you would just – I just kind of assumed maybe with like the advent of mass transit, like that would be a modern problem, you know. But like you would just – he's just like going to the nearest suburb. But the the description of the collapsing of like the micro and the macro – of like the, like he's engaging with the politics of it. Like, should I bring the disease to them? Uh, mm-hmm. worried about like my business closing, like all of these things, all like these, these massive things become like on the exact same level for this one individual trying to decide what to do. And that was like very relatable because I remember like people were like, yeah, the, where I work, like it's going to close. Like some people are going home and I was just trying to like catch up like mentally almost like being like, wait, what? Like, should I go home? Like, I, I don't know. And by, you know, I kind of let the situation choose for me, which is like, took my Hell yeah. computer and then they're like, okay, you're now at home. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with the text here. First thing I wanted to uh, start with is from, uh, there's a LibriVox version in six parts on YouTube that I used uh, to listen to. This is a part we talked about the sort of sensitivity to what happens to the less than bourgeois folks. Um, let's, uh, I'm going to play, I think I got the time code right here. I'll play this well as the wickedness of them together and the most sober and judicious people despised and abhorred them but it was impossible to make any impression upon the middling people and the working laboring poor their fears were predominant over all their passions and they threw away their money in a most distracted manner upon those whimsies maid-servants especially and men-servants were the chief of their customers and their question generally was after the first demand of will there be a plague i say the next question was oh sir i for the lord's sake what will become of me will my mistress keep me or will she turn me off will she stay here or will she go into the country and if she goes into the country will she take me with her or leave me here to be starved and undone and the like of men servants 
The truth is, the case of poor servants was very dismal, as I shall have occasion to mention again by and by, for it was apparent a prodigious number of them would be turned away, and it was so. And of them abundance perished, and particularly of those that these false prophets had flattered with hopes that they should be continued in their services, and carried with their masters and mistresses into the country, and had not public charity provided for these poor creatures, whose number was exceeding great, and in all cases of this nature must be so, they would have been in the worst condition of any people in the city." These things agitated the minds of the common people for many months, while the first apprehensions were upon them, and while the plague was not, as I may say, yet broken out. But I must also not forget that the more serious part of the inhabitants behaved after another manner. The government encouraged their devotion, and appointed public prayers and days of fasting and humiliation to make public confession of sin and implore the mercy of God to avert the dreadful judgment which hung over their heads. Uh, I feel like it's a fairly recognizable uh, portrait of society. Um, yeah, so you know, a lot of people just do a lot of prayers. Let's get the prayer group, prayer squad out onto the corners um, for the people that are willing to like accept that. And then, yeah, everyone's like, I mean, that's horrifying to think of those a servant being like, Hey, am I going to be, you're taking me out to the countryside, right? Like, I mean, damn, that's, yeah. it, it turns out feudalism is uh, tying labor to a uh, sort of a feudal household is as stupid as tying health insurance to a, a capitalist employer. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's sickening to hear that. He, I think he refers to his family at several points in the book, and his family includes servants. So, oh. I mean, it is very feudal in that yeah, yeah. they are included in that, like, head count. Um, but, and later in the book, you find out that um, mostly the servants who were left behind are the ones that get taken to the pest houses. Um, because most, like, the overriding policy is to shut the houses up. But if if the kind of master of the house left and left the servants behind, that's where they would get taken. Mm, to, to, an aban to, to the abandoned houses, you're saying? To the pest houses. So, like, <laughs> pest houses were these kind of quarantine centers um, where sick people, I guess sick people who didn't have anyone to care for them would get taken. Right. And he talks later in the book also about like how it was a silly policy to confine people who were sick with people who weren't. Yes. Um, yeah. That's a major criticism of shutting up of houses. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with, like family of dead people. Basically. And like focusing on, you know, poor people who have much less space. I mean, exact same issue we have uh, here. Um, exact same thing. Um, yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Uh, let's, I want to skip a little bit ahead in this part uh, one, two, where he's talking about the watchman. That these examiners be sworn by the alderman to inquire and learn from time to time what houses in every parish be visited and what persons be sick and of what diseases as near as they can inform themselves. And upon doubt in that case, to command restraint of access 
until it appear what the disease shall prove, and if they find any person sick of the infection, to give order to the constable that the house be shut up, and if the constable shall be found remiss or negligent, to give present notice thereof to the alderman of the ward. Watchmen that to every infected house there be appointed two watchmen, one for every day and the other for the night, and that these watchmen have a special care that no person go in or out of such infected houses whereof they have the charge, upon pain of severe punishment, and the said watchmen to do such further offices as the sick house shall need and require. Now... To get back to our discussion of the political and literary dreams of the uh, plague, or as Foucault puts it, or the order slash anarchic ones, um, mm -hmm. they were never able to uh, hire enough watchmen to actually do this, it turns out. Um, so you see, I mean, that's a, a tremendous growth of the state uh, surveillance function, obviously, because you're going to have to hire all these people for these different houses. Uh, ultimately not doable, though, um, to the mm. scale that they were attempting. And apparently they drew mainly on the unemployed poor people, like people who had just mm. lost their jobs. Right. And so you have, like, the poor surveilling the poor on behalf of the state, and right. they're also working in the most dangerous frontline jobs imaginable, like being a watchman. And then he also talks about how, like, Several watchmen get murdered. Yeah, like inhabitants of the houses who just, yeah. So it's yeah, yeah. That's that part is interesting because it's like he says, you know, it's. I wonder if I had did I have to take a note on that part. I'm not sure if I did, but basically, it's like, you know, the watchmen. Oh, I remember what he says. It's. Oh, I have it here. Actually, I'm gonna. We're gonna skip to part four real quick, folks. Um, and I'm going to play this part because it talks about watchman abuse of power right here mm -hmm. for their ill treatment of the families i think seven or eight of them in several places were killed i know not whether i should say murdered or not because i cannot enter into the particular cases it is true that the watchmen were on their duty and acting in the post where they were placed by a lawful authority and killing any public legal officer in the execution of his office is always in the language of the law called murder but as they were not authorized by the magistrates instructions or by the power they acted under to be injurious or abusive either to the people who were under their observation or to any that concerned themselves for them so when they did so they might be said to act themselves not their office to act as private persons not as persons employed and Consequently, if they brought mischief upon themselves by such an undue behavior, that mischief was upon their own heads. And indeed, they had so much the hearty curses of the people, whether they deserved it or not, that whatever befell them, nobody pitied them. And everybody was apt to say they deserved it, whatever it was. 
nor do I remember that anybody was ever punished, at least to any considerable degree, for whatever was done to the watchmen that guarded their houses. What variety of stratagems were used to escape and get out of houses thus shut up, by which the watchmen were deceived or overpowered, and that the people got away, I have taken notice of already, and shall say no more to that. Basically saying no snitching. I'm not going to snitch. Um, I mean... Imagine saying this about law and law enforcement in a con in American context, right? Definitely. Like if you, if you know, killing a cop is that's murder, but if the cop, uh, goes, abuses his power, he's not acting as a cop anymore. And whatever he does, whatever happens, happens. I mean, that is a, a mar remarkable sentiment. Uh, yeah. I wonder if it's like uh, such a, like a product of like professionalizing like a police force like that and making it this kind of like, uh, it's this class onto its own that we currently are in where you can kind of see, it's actually quite interesting to watch like the suburban mind wrap its head around abusive power right now <laughs> by police officers. Cause I've watched a few videos where they're like, they're like, I, I respect you. And honestly, like you have done so much to protect my community, but I'm having a bit of an issue here. And the cops, like, it's not my problem. And it's amazing yeah. watching that, the watching those, that worldview kind of start to crack. But I, I wonder if like, in, in this context with Defoe, these people who are like previous laborers who have been fired and now given this job, that, that, that kind of like reverence isn't like, it's like, well, this is just some like out of work laborer. So yeah. fuck him. He Everyone's just desperate. It. Yeah. This is yeah. like the gig economy. It's like you become a watchman and then you risk your life and there's this weird impunity. Yeah. Um, it's, maybe they also conceived of it as like a, a way of, like a kind of pressure valve like there are going to be these acts of violence if we can just confine them to the occasional yeah. murdered watchmen at, at least they're <laughs> killing yeah at least they're killing other people who basically are from their class like yeah yeah but some air out of the tires a little bit um cool yeah i think uh, one final thing i wanted to play in this part uh one is just talking about the ending of play plays coming to an end um and the and because I think that I, it makes me think of sports and I miss basketball. Orders concerning loose persons and idle assemblies. Beggars. For as much as nothing is more complained of than the multitude of rogues and wandering beggars that swarm in every place about the city, being a great cause of the spreading of the infection, and will not be avoided, notwithstanding any orders that have been given to the contrary, it is therefore now ordered that such constables and others whom this matter may any way concern take special care that no wandering beggars be suffered in the streets of the city in any fashion or manner whatsoever upon the penalty provided by the law to be duly and severely executed upon them. Plays. That all plays, bear baitings, games, singing of ballads, buckler play, or such like causes of assemblies of people be utterly prohibited, and the parties offended. 
Alex, that's a really good selection of our old, uh, old, olden time amusements. <laughs> that's a rocking chair. Bear baiting. <laughs> that's what we. That's a. That's a really big oversight by us by not having bear baited on there. Yeah, it's one of the first where it's. It's you know I feel like old timey. Um, um, pleasure, uh, pleasure attractions are like, you know, like something very simple. And this is like pissing off a very powerful predator. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, for this fun. is like that. Yeah. You guys think Xbox is cool. Like you should see what we do this fucking bear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just like, just imagining like the people being like, this would probably be the last bear painting show I'm going to see until this reopens. <laughs> just like not being able to handle it. Yeah. That was like me at the Nets Knicks game. Yeah. Not knowing that that was the last NBA game I might see in years. Some um, guy just like wistfully remembering it while he's locked in with his family. Just a super confused bear. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel sad for the bears. I'm not going to participate in this joke. <laughs> I mean, I feel oh, yeah, a little no, bit yeah, We should clarify that we obviously don't care about the bear. It's nice, nice. nice. I mean, I don't care about it enough to not laugh at it. I mean, I, and not replay this part. Um, I just want to re listen to it because it is funny to talk. It gets second billion after plays. <laughs> plays. That all plays, bear baitings, <laughs> games, singing of ballads, buckler play, or such like causes of assemblies of people. Buckler play. I don't know. Let's find out. Buckler play. Uh, oh, sword and a buckler is a shield. Just like so. With a yeah, basically like fencing with a shield. Let's buckler play. Hmm. Uh, good. All right. Cool. All right. Thanks for that, Defoe, for those olden time amusements. Um, uh, let's move on to part two here. I got one thing I want to play. Um, there are a few things from here. Uh, oh, yeah. We got a bit more for on the servants here. I just want to play. Um, I must here take further notice that nothing was more fatal to the inhabitants of the city than the supine negligence of the people themselves, who, during the long notice or warning they had of the visitation, made no provision for it by laying in store of provisions or of other necessaries by which they might have lived, retired, and within their own houses. And I would just like to point out to Defoe, maybe they didn't have $400 to cover uh, emergency expenses like most Americans do, and they weren't able to load up on provisions, but... As I have observed, others did, and who were, in a great measure, preserved by that caution. Nor were they, after they were a little hardened to it, so shy of conversing with one another when actually infected, as they were at first. No, though they knew it, I acknowledge I was one of those thoughtless ones that had made so little provision that my servants were obliged to go out of doors to buy every trifle by penny and halfpenny. Here, unacceptable. You don't get to be master anymore, right? Like, if you leave people in the lurch like that, like, this whole system, I mean, and obviously we know feudalism didn't come crashing to an end because of this uh, mm -hmm. loss of legitimacy in the minds of the people. Um, but it should have, uh, because if you're just like, Oh, sorry guys, I know I'm supposed to be the enlightenment thinker of rationality as capitalism blooms across the world and be able to like, you know, make economic decisions for this family of ours, but I fucked up. So here's some pennies, go see what you can get out there. 
But and then yeah. there's so much charity done by the king and there, the there is presence. Yeah, I, I roll my eyes at that part a little bit in how much like yeah. It, like I mean Yeah, like uh, like thank God charity was there to do some stuff. Uh I mean obviously, but the mass death, I mean clearly it didn't do it nearly enough. It was mainly there to yeah, like pacify people. Um mm -hmm. Let's see, let's put a little bit more... Just as before it began. Even though my experience showing me the folly, I began to be wiser so late that I had scarce time to store myself sufficient for our common subsistence for a month. I had in family only an ancient woman that managed the house, a maidservant, <laughs> two apprentices, and myself. And the plague beginning to increase about us, I had many sad thoughts about what course I should take and how I should act. Pity the small business owner. <laughs> the many dismal objects which happened everywhere as I went about the streets had filled my mind with a great deal of horror for fear of the distemper, which was indeed very horrible in itself, and in some more than in others. The swellings, which were generally in the neck or groin, when they grew hard and... Yeah, that sounds awful. Uh, we'll skip over that part. Um, uh, let's go to part three uh, quickly here. I just want this brief section on uh, work stoppages uh, here. Seamstresses, milliners, all master workmen in manufactures, especially such as belong to ornament and the less necessary part of the people's dress, clothes and furniture for houses, such as ribbon weavers and other weavers, gold and silver lace makers and gold and silver wire drawers, seamstresses, milliners, shoemakers, hat makers and glove makers, also upholsterers, joiners, cabinet makers, looking glass makers, non-essential non workers, basically and innumerable trades which depend upon such as these. I say, the master workmen in such stopped their work, dismissed their journeymen and workmen and all their dependents. So you can see the economic impact very similar to today's. Um, people had, you know, apprentice internships or things they had lined up, whether I know somebody who's, they were going to do clinicals to become a nurse, and now they just can't do that because the medical system's you know, shut down. So what do you do? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, that's entirely relatable. And because basically have this system of patriarchal economic decision-making where um, it's decided by a few idiots like the narrator here who didn't see the plague coming, um, I guess, and now his servants are effed. His ancient woman his who ancient takes care woman. of the house. <laughs> but he does say that he bakes bread for them. He bakes like five weeks worth of bread, and I thought of all of the sourdough bros. <laughs> yeah. There's no flour. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, so part three, uh, there's a bit more, there's, you know, talking about, like, our boats out there, are they safe from the distemper? Some aren't, some aren't, basically, because the rats get in there. Um, big section on abortions and midwifery and child oh, murder, a lot that, of numbers. Yeah. That's yeah. a really disturbing section, though. Yeah. I don't and know, do you have him some credit, he does say that, like, the people who suffered the most during this were the pregnant women and the women who were nursing babies. Yeah, because especially if you were in an infected area, the midwife's not going to come. You're on your own. Right. And they would pass the plague, like, back and forth, kind of, you know, mothers would give it to their own children and stuff. Yeah. 
Um, we'll go to part four again. Uh, talk about this trust and charity and then the market. Uh, well, does the market provide a little bit? It turns out oh, I not forever. Um, yeah, here's the, here's the part on uh, charity and distrust. John answered that what other people had done was nothing to them, that they assured them they were all of one company, that they had never been more in number. This is uh, being out in the countryside and meeting other travelers and saying, hey, have you guys been social distancing? Uh, and uh, anybody feeling sick? And, you know, like in the zombie movies, the person who has symptoms just hides in the back, basically. But anyway. Then they saw them at that time, which by the way, was very true, that they came out in two separate companies, but joined by the way, their cases being the same, that they were ready to give what account of themselves anybody would desire of them, and to give in their names and places of abode, that so they might be called to an account for any disorder that they might be guilty of, that the townsmen might see they were content to live heartily and only desired a little room to breathe in on the forest where it was wholesome for where it was not they could not stay and would decamp if they found it otherwise there but said the townsman we have a great charge of poor upon our hands already and we must take care not to increase it we suppose you can give us no security against your being chargeable to our parish and to the inhabitants anymore. I mean, basically, we have this this political economy concerns. Like, are we going to have enough to feed the people that you want us to feed? And if not, like, then maybe we don't make an alliance or a travel company. Um, those sorts of dark uh Calculations. We'll move a bit ahead into the market. Uh, people from the suburbs bringing in food to people in the city uh, and the danger there. True or not, that the plague, which was very hot at Waltham Abbey on one side and at Rumford and Brentwood on the other side, was also coming to Epping, to Woodford, and to most of the towns upon the forest, and which, as they said, was brought down among them chiefly by the Higglers and such people as went to and from London with provisions. If this was true, it was an evident contradiction to that report, which was afterwards spread all over England, but which, as I have said, I cannot confirm of my own knowledge, namely, that the market people carrying provisions to the city never got the infection or carried it back into the country, both which, I have been assured, has been false. It might be that they were preserved even beyond expectation, though not to a miracle, that abundance went and came and were not touched, and that was much for the encouragement of the poor people of London, who had been completely miserable if the people that brought provisions to the markets had not been many times wonderfully preserved, or at least more preserved than would be reasonably expected. But now these new inmates began to be disturbed more effectually, for the towns about them were really infected, and they began to be afraid to trust one another so much as to go abroad for such things as they wanted. So I can't help but think about how the coronavirus has nailed New York, and now a lot of places are wondering, like, well, it hasn't really hit here yet. Are we safe? And places that we require that basic uh, process are meat, for instance, 
on South Dakota. Like it's, it's finally starting to hit there in North Dakota. They are literally uh, shutting staff down and making them take pay cuts in this meantime, because there's not enough elective uh, surgeries to pay the bills there. So this time we're supposed to prepare for coronavirus. Um, people are actually getting laid off. Um, but I mean, eventually they're probably going to get slammed just slower, right? Like it takes time for these things to uh, transition into or to transmit through the hinterland, I guess, yeah. as they say. And this, and we're in in this narrative and in ours, I think there's this false sense of security in that latency. Yeah, I mean, right at the very end of this book, uh, he talks about how by the time the plague had kind of abated in London it was raging in the sort of satellite cities like Peterborough and the right. people in London were actually scared of the people from outside, like it completely reversed. And so at some point I'm sure it will be the case that in New York, the fear will be that people are coming in from other States. So yeah. Like create a second wave or third wave or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, let's actually move on to the final part, part six, because we talk about symptomless transmission, uh, oh, which yeah. is another thing that's familiar to people. Um, uh, there's a bit more about trade and then the curve yield, but I think this is the final relevance, a few portions that are relevant here. So here's on the symptoms uh, and, not, uh, and trusting people that don't have symptoms. To the article of infecting one another at first before people came to right notions of the infection and of infecting one another. People were only shy of those that were really sick, a man with a cap on his head or with clothes round his neck, which was the case of those that had swellings there. Such was indeed frightful. But when we saw a gentleman dressed with his band on and his gloves in his hand, his hat upon his head and his hair combed, of such we had not the least apprehensions, and people conversed a great while freely, especially with their neighbors and such as they knew. But when the physicians assured us that the danger was as well from the sound, that is the seemingly sound, as the sick, and that those people who thought themselves entirely free were oftentimes the most fatal, and that it came to be generally understood that people were sensible of it and of the reason of it, then, I say, they began to be jealous of everybody, and a vast number of people locked themselves up, so as not to come abroad into any company at all, nor suffer any that had been abroad in promiscuous company to come into their houses, or near them, at least not so near them as to be within the reach of their breath or of any smell from them. And when they were obliged to converse at a distance with strangers, they would always have preservatives in their mouths and about their clothes to repel and keep off the infection. I want to skip a little bit ahead here to this part where it, it sort of reminds me of the talk about bending the curve. Uh, let's see here. In five, Miss Carey. And observe it from me, the next bill will decrease, and you will see many more people recover than used to do. For, though a oh, vast... Yeah, a little bit ahead of here. 8,297... 
I remember my friend Dr. Heath coming to see me the week before told me he was sure that the violence of it would assuage in a few days. But when I saw the weekly bill of that week, which was the highest of the whole year, being 8,297 of all diseases, I upbraided him with it and asked him what he had made his judgment from. His answer, however, was not so much to seek as I thought it would have been. Look you, says he, by the number which are at this time sick and infected, there should have been 20,000 dead the last week instead of 8,000. If the inveterate moral contagion had been as it was two weeks ago, for then it ordinarily killed in two or three days, now not under eight or ten and then not above one in five recovered, whereas I have observed that now not above two in five miscarry. And observe. So, yeah, I mean, basically the disease gets less severe. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not a plague historian enough to know why, what was actually causing that. But, I mean, that would be nice to hear about coronavirus. I mean, you occasionally hear a stat like more people are infected than we had we had guessed, and that might mean we uh, hit herd immunity faster. I would say, don't get your hopes up too much on that stuff now. But I mean, it you can see like this idea that you're going to look for um, good signs uh, uh, and for and signs for progress, and that actually like you can glean some of that through, you know, numerical cataloging of things like um, new cases and death rate uh, is interesting to me. Well, yeah. I think for, for him and the, the, the meta narrative of this piece is that he charts all these coping mechanisms that, that the people of London use, you know, which includes religious fervor and um, bibliomancy and astrology and, he notes, I think, in the last section that all of these things start to fade away. People give up on on mm. these remedies, I think, because it's really kind of just, I mean, in like a poetic way, it's like the plague's final, like victim is your, is like group hope. But it... Yeah. it the, the belief the, in agency. Yeah, I think the idea that the future, a future without this, it, it for anyone going through it, that you do have to let go of that in some like, on some level and you're stuck in this kind of eternal present where there's this long shadow of the past before it. And now just this kind of pr permanent prison of the present that you're just stuck in either waiting to be like plucked up basically by the plague or not. Yeah. He also talks about people getting so kind of desensitized <clears throat> to the misery um, mm -hmm. but, or the, the kind of, the horrible like threat of death is so normalized by the time the plague peaks in London that people stop caring, like they stop kind of taking care of themselves. And I, I just want to read a quick quote from, there's about three quarters of the way through the book. I don't know exactly where, but um, he says, uh, this, this at last made many people being hardened to the danger grow less concerned at it and less cautious towards the latter end of the time. And when it was come to its height, than they were at first. Then with a kind of Turkish predestinarianism, they would say, if it pleased God to strike them, it was all one whether they went abroad or stayed at home, they could not escape it. And therefore they went boldly about, even into infected houses and infected company. 
visited sick people and in short lay in the beds with their wives or relations when they were infected. So yeah, it's just at a certain point people basically stop caring and yeah. He he talks about um you know stories of uh people apparently intentionally infecting people once they get it. Um, and he, he talks about that, right? He's yeah. Like, he, ex- he expresses some skepticism of that saying it's basically like suburban people, um, <laughs> you know, distrustful of city wanderers, um, yeah, and, which is a good read. Good scam there. Defoe. Yeah. Um, and then also, uh, he talks about people just drowning themselves in the Thames, like, yeah. uh, and whether or not those are counted as like those deaths being, massively undercounted basically um yeah and then there's another part where he's talking about you know some people estimate there's twenty thousand deaths for my purposes i think it'll be enough to say there's eight thousand like that suits the horror of it just fine too um yeah i mean yeah really really dark stuff yeah there's a few there's like two things that stuck out i think there's a there's just a single a line which where he says uh namely that whereas death now be uh, began not, as we may say, to hover over everyone's head only, but to look in their houses and chambers and stare in their faces. And that's just such a like succinct mm. and powerful description of living through a plague that it's just like death, you know, like for us, like in any given moment, death is always an option. That's why I look both ways before I cross the street. Like, but it's one of an infinite amount of options that we all like that could possibly happen to us. And so it's not too terribly serious. I mean, every once in a while a friend or, or a loved one passes away and then death becomes much more apparent, but it eventually fades away. What's unique about this experience for me and that Defoe nails is that death is constantly in your face as he would say like even in like brooklyn is quite silent right now and i Mm -hmm. can't ever get that out of my head that it's silent because of just this this like air of death that's going through it currently so even in non things death is present and it um it, it it makes those kind of plague that plague art from an earlier period the from the bubonic plague with the this massive uh skeleton standing over a major municipal uh, centers. Right. I get that. And I understand what that is because it is a Colossus right now in, in our lives. That's just always, always either the topic of discussion or just right near it. Like looking into your window. Absolutely. Whether it's your comedy podcasts, your basketball podcasts, your literary podcasts, your whatever sort of like window you have into the outside world. Uh, the conversations people are going to be having on there are going to be surrounded by or f- centered by this crisis and it's going to be like that for a long time um anything else you guys want to say all right i think i like the way this ends the uh, final lines yet i alive um he writes it like a kind of a crappy poem but um, or he called he, he i think he, he downplays it a little bit doesn't he he calls it like vulgar a little bit i can't remember yeah, what he says this is the best verse i can do yeah but uh yeah this is just the last couple minutes here uh, i'll play this out and uh, we will see you oh let me just get the plug in uh patreon.com slash literary hangover if you can't um pay money right now do the coronavirus that's fine what i would prefer you do is go subscribe at twitch.tv slash literary hangover uh we'll have grace and alex on some of these uh 
these study halls maybe at some point um, that, that way they won't just watch me when they wake up confused after a dream in the morning like Alex did. Um, but, That's how I uh, like it. It just keeps me on my toes <laughs> that, to know that Matt is uh, playing a plague video game while I just yeah. woke up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm playing a Plague's Tale Innocence and it is a fun game. Wait, that say. was plague themed? Yeah, it's a Plague's Tale Innocence, it's called. It's, it's set in like the 1300s uh, in France. And it is, man, it is fun. Uh, and the graphics are great. I mean, I love that old middle, like sort of feudal village uh, European thing. I don't know, that that's interests me. So anyway, if you want to check that out, subscribe at twitch.tv slash literary hangover. Um, and uh, here's the final minutes of this. Oh, wait. Oh, yep. Go ahead. Sorry. We didn't, I forgot to mention, or we forgot to bring up maybe that it doesn't have too much to do with the book, but, uh, London burned down like nine months after this, oh, too, yeah. which yeah, is yeah. insane. And I'm, they say that some people suggested that. 1666. Yeah. Oh yeah. Of course. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is what makes Matt a believer. How would you not? How would you not draw that connection? Oh yeah, like, well, you oh, have... yeah, there's so many other things. But like, talk about a stress test, like for a newly yeah. reformed government to have a major plague and then your capital burn essentially burned down. But some people have said, like some have, historians have suggested that that's what stopped a, a second wave is a killing off of the rat population in the fire. It also uh, apparently helped the economy bounce back because all the shit was burned and everyone needed to make new stuff. This is uh, the case. We had um, on Majority Report some sociologists that um, sort of like track material history. So like what they were talking about is how um, if I, I might be getting this wrong, basically this, the grandsons of the Confederacy we're right back in their position um, in society. Like you can trace slavery to like the, those long-term economic impacts. Likewise with the plague effects is certain people made, I mean, obviously like these, a bunch of housing became available because people mm-hmm. were dying like crazy, right? Like this was a, uh, a time of accumulation for the people who survived. Uh, yeah. And that accumulation actually uh, lives on with, uh, Europeans the same way the primitive accumulations of slavery and the slave economies uh, do in America. Like you could actually, um, uh, it, 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 you can correlate it with electoral maps, um, uh, which is crazy. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's why this stuff is so important. Capitalism. What was that? Proto-disaster capitalism. Exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just, uh, I mean, capitalism is just as it needs disasters, uh, basically. Um, yeah. Um, but anyway, guys, uh, I appreciate it. Uh, you guys for joining me. I'll just play this final thing uh, here and then, uh, that'll be it. Up the street and down. He throws his hands abroad. Lord, what an alteration is here. Why, last week I came along and hardly anybody was to be seen. Another man, I heard him, adds to this words, "'Tis all wonderful, tis all a dream. Blessed be God, says a third man, and let us give thanks to him, for tis all his own doing. Human help and human skill was at an end. These were all strangers to one another. But such salutations as these were frequent in the street every day, and in spite of a loose behavior, the very common people went along the streets giving God thanks for their deliverance. 
It was now, as I said before, the people had cast off all apprehensions, and that too fast. Indeed, we were no more afraid now to pass by a man with a white cap upon his head, or with a doth wrapped around his neck, or with his leg limping, occasioned by the sores in his groin, all of which were frightful to the last degree, but the week before. But now the street was full of them, and these poor recovering creatures, give them their due, appeared very sensible of their unexpected deliverance, and I should wrong them very much if I should not acknowledge that I believe many of them were really thankful. But I must own that, for the generality of the people, it might too justly be said of them, as was said of the children of Israel, after their being delivered from the host of Pharaoh, when they passed the Red Sea, and looked back and saw the Egyptians overwhelmed in the water, that is, that they sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. I can go no farther here. I should be counted censorious and perhaps unjust if I should enter into the unpleasing work of reflecting, whatever cause there was for it, upon the unthankfulness and return of all manner of wickedness among us, which I was so much an eyewitness of myself. I shall conclude the account of this calamitous year, therefore, with a coarse but sincere stanza of my own which I placed at the end of my ordinary memorandums the same year they were written. A dreadful plague in London was in the year 65, which swept an hundred thousand souls away. Yet I, alive. H. F.